afternoon and welcome to the 134th of the COVID calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today I speak with the founder of Marked by COVID, Kristen Urquiza. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and topics, and please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, September 24th, 2020, there are 31,993,442 confirmed cases of COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. That's up from 31 million 728,021 reported yesterday. 6,951,789 of those are in the United States, up from 6,921,817 reported yesterday. There are now a total of 202,344 deaths in the United States from COVID-19, up from 201,459 yesterday, another day with 1,000 or close to 1,000 deaths day to day. Okay, I'd like to introduce my guest today, Kristen Urquiza. Let me tell you a little bit about her. She's the co-founder and chief activist of Marked by COVID. Kristen is a graduate of Yale University and UC Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy, where she has a Master of Public Affairs. She's an environmental advocate at Mighty Earth, where she works to hold corporations like Cargill accountable to their industrial agricultural practices that displace indigenous people from their lands and drive deforestation in places like the Amazon rainforest and beyond. Additionally, Kristen works closely with Liberation in a Generation, a group working to narrow the wealth gap between people of color and white families in the United States within a generation. Her grandparents were migrant farm workers from Mexico and Oklahoma, and her father worked in the fields as a child. She grew up in the Maryvale community of Phoenix and is a proud product of public primary education and the first person in her family to go to college. Maryvale is a community of predominantly people of color and immigrants and is now seeing the highest rates of COVID-19 in the nation where people are waiting 13 hours to be tested. Kristen Urquiza, thank you so much for your time today and welcome to COVID Calls. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Usually, um, well, actually every day, we read an obituary or a story about um, mutual support for COVID-19 sufferers. And I've asked Kristen if she wouldn't mind actually reading the obituary today on the Marked by COVID website, you will find, which I highly recommend to you, you will find a series of uh, what they call honest obituaries. And uh, Kristen, would you mind reading one of those? Sure. I will uh, start. I will read my dad's obituary. Um, Mark Anthony Arquisa passed away on June 30th after more than three weeks battling COVID-19. Mark was a high school 400 meter dash state champion and cross country runner. Mark was known for his infectious energy, strong will, and yes, stubbornness. He met his wife, Brenda, at Tolleson High School. They welcomed their only child, Kristen Danielle, in 1981. The family loved their annual summer vacations to California, where Kristen now lives. Mark, who was often called Blackjack by his friends and family, was a lover of nature, the night sky, politics, and was often the life of the party. Along with Pris Brenda and Kristen, he is loved and missed by siblings Frank Urquiza, Benny Urquiza, Richard Urquiza, Diana Urquiza, Gina Urquiza Waters, siblings-in-law Carol Urquiza, Chris Waters, Yvonne Urquiza, and Ray Camacho, his nieces and nephews, the broader community of Tolleson, Arizona, and countless friends. Mark, like so many others, should not have died from COVID-19. His death is due to the carelessness of the politicians who continue to jeopardize the health of brown bodies through clear lack of leadership, 
refusal to acknowledge the severity of this crisis, and inability and unwillingness to give clear and decisive direction on how to minimize risk. Mark's daughter, Kristen, and her partner, Christine, are channeling our sadness and rage into building an awareness campaign so fewer families are forced to endure this. We honor Mark's life by continuing to fight for others, even in these darkest moments. Kristen will be starting an ofrenda, an altar with pictures of those lost to COVID-19 outside the Arizona State Capitol building on Wednesday evening at 4.30. All are welcome to bring pictures of their loved ones who are suffering from COVID or who have passed. For more information, follow Mark by COVID on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Thank you so much for, for reading that. And uh, just, just take a moment to pause there and remind people you're listening to COVID Calls. And my guest today is Kristen Urquiza. Be sure to get your questions in. You can get them in in the YouTube live chat, or you can put them up on Twitter, just tag at US of Disaster. Kristen, uh, we usually start by asking people where they're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there. So let's let's do that. Where are you calling from and how's it looking there today? I'm calling from San Francisco, um, which is where I live and have been living throughout the entire pandemic. And we are, you know, in a spot where our leaders have, you know, taken decisive action from the very beginning. And so our, our numbers remain fairly low. Um, although in the state of California, you know, we've seen uh, up, uptick in cases, especially in Southern California. Sorry, I lost my mute there for a second. Um, the uptick in cases is something that's, are, have, are, what are the, the reasons that are being given for that? I mean, we're seeing that in states where students are returning to campus, for example, or, or schools are open again. Are you getting a good sense of what's causing that there? Because San Francisco was hit hard early and then also one of the places that was first to begin to bend the curve because of really strong public health measures. Yeah, San Francisco still is pretty much um, in a, a in a similar situation, but broader in in California, what we're seeing is not just the uh, you know coming back of of students, but it's also um, just you know people um, in Southern California not necessarily adhering to uh, so. Um, the guidelines and practices. And I think that's um, something that's really important to um, think about is just how we're all in this together and the actions of people in one part of the state or in one part of the country have impacts on other parts of the state and other parts of the country. The obituary that you read uh, is one that's, that's how I first um got to know about you. I, I remember reading it and uh, we read a lot of obituaries on this, in this project, on this program. And in the obituary, you share a lot of personal things about your father. I wonder if there are things you, you left out or other things you might want to sort of tell us about him. Oh, I love that question. Um, <laughs> obituaries are, um, you know, great memorials, right? But you also have to be pretty succinct um, because they're expensive and, you know, you just can't go on for, for pages and pages. So I think some of the things that I wasn't able to um, really describe in the obituary is just my dad's generosity. Um, one of the things that I continue to reflect upon when I think about my dad is how he was the kind of person who would drive across town on a moment's notice to help a friend move a piece of furniture or um, you know, be able to help bring somebody home from the hospital who needed a ride. My dad was a very dependable and very generous person with his time. And I think that had to do with the fact that he just loved people. He loved being around people. He loved building community. He loved life. And, and for him, that was being around his friends and family. Your um, biography, you know, shows us that you're a person with strong social commitments and you describe yourself as an activist. Is that something you learned at home? Was your father a politically active person? Um, my dad was not so politically active, but he followed politics. So 
we always had uh, newspapers in the house and my dad engaged me from a really young age on issues of the day. And we also uh, watched a lot of uh, History Channel together. Um, and I remember kind of bonding with my dad about history and politics in like a very true and genuine way. And I know that that really helped me open my eyes and developing a sense of purpose through my own um, my own pathway and fighting for what I believe and and definitely my commitment to you know the greater good. So what was his experience with COVID-19? Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure. Um, he got sick on June 11th and um, you know he woke up that morning experiencing uh, severe uh, exhaustion, uh, fever, and a terrible cough. And my mom called me to tell me what was going on. And I, you know, just was listening to her. And, and before she could even finish her sentence, I, you know, was saying to her mom, it sounds like he has COVID. We need to get him tested right away. And we need to assume that you've been exposed and figure out how to keep you safe and, um, you know, mitigate the spread between the two of you. Um, and that really was the beginning of a 19-day saga um, of my dad's illness in which he sadly passed away on June 30th. And were you able to be back home before he died? I wasn't. Um, I was traveling home on the day that he ended up passing um, in hopes that I could you know, potentially be there. But he took a... a, a a dip for the worse really suddenly, which I, you know, have since learned is common in a lot of COVID cases uh, where, you know, I had been talking to him the day before he had gone into the ICU and he was telling me, I feel so good. I feel so much better. And I think I'm going to be home on Monday. And instead he died on Tuesday. Was he able to get a test? Was he able to get the kind of diagnostics that, I mean, one thing we know nationwide is access to testing has been quite difficult. And in June, I think it was probably even worse than it is today, depending on the community. Did he yeah. have access to the things he needed so that doctors could help him? Somewhat. Um, he was able to get tested on uh, the day after he um, woke up with those symptoms, but he never got his test results back. So one of the things that we saw in Arizona in particular um, during that time frame was incredible delays um, in turnaround on testing. And then also in some communities, in particular my community, people uh, who were underinsured or uninsured were waiting upwards of 13 hours to get tested. Uh, luckily my dad had health insurance at the time and so was able to get tested rather quickly but that didn't actually make much of a difference because he never got his test results back. His condition ended up continuing to deteriorate so that we needed to take him to the emergency room because he was having difficulties breathing. And I can't help but wonder, had we had a rapid test, had you know we been able to kind of get him into the hospital sooner, maybe something would have been able to happen differently. And I will never know um, about that because that's the system that we have. The inability to get the test results back, that was because the doctors just said, you know, treat it like it's very serious and go home and don't worry about it. I've heard lots of stories like that where the results were gonna take so long to get back that the doctors just had to act as if it was COVID and give people whatever kind of advice they could. Is that yeah. Case? Exactly. Um, the the state of Arizona was having you know fourteen day plus turnaround periods at that time, and so the physician that he saw said was you know continue like go home, um, you know quarantine, assume it's COVID, and you know hopefully you'll get the test results back soon. But if you start experiencing shortness of breath, then you'll need to go to the hospital. Um, you know, one of the doctors at the hospital um, in, in talking to us, um, you know, once my dad was first admitted, um, said, you know, I, I wish he would have been here sooner. And um, I think that is a case for so many people um, across the United States who have been 
impacted by this is that we haven't had consistent information on and and reliable testing um, services to ensure that we are getting on top of this disease before it it travels throughout the body. In the obituary and other articles I've read where you're interviewed, you talk about this sort of outpouring of love and memories about your father after he passed away. That must have been quite something for you. I mean, sometimes we find out things about people after <laughs> they die. We know that they're well-loved and then we find out there's an even broader community. What was that experience like? Yeah, that was um, very true for me in that I felt like, in, and have felt like I've gotten in some ways closer to my father by being able to share his stories and have um, extended friends come forward to you know, tell me that they're so proud of me and know that my dad would be proud of me for continuing to fight for him. Um, but it was a little bit overwhelming at first. Um, I, in some ways I uh, was overwhelmed because I realized just how similar we are in so many ways that I hadn't mm -hmm. seen before or allowed myself to recognize before. But then there was also little nuggets of his um, history that I just hadn't quite really appreciated before. So for example, my cousin or his cousin, uh, who were very close to was sharing a story that I had heard once before, but about how when my dad uh, was in high school, as it we said in the obituary, he was a track star. Mm -hmm. He also worked in the vegetable fields with his dad, who was an immigrant from Mexico. And his dad could never understand why he would run around the track for no money whatsoever. <laughs> And so he one day uh, decided that he would try to put an end to my dad's track career and brought his pickup truck and basically threw my dad in the back of the pickup truck to take him to go work in the fields while my dad was like supposed to be during you know track meet. <laughs> That's a funny story. It is. Um, yeah. It really just helped kind of um, put more light on the relationship that my dad and his dad had had. My dad was the oldest of yeah. six brothers and sisters oh, and wow. sort of... Okay understanding that um, tension between being a first generation American and one's you know, parent from the old world, I really appreciated knowing that. So the responsibility of writing an obituary is, is a very serious one. I've seen it in my family with my parents writing obituaries of their, uh, of their parents, my grandfathers. And I, I think about my father who really labored to write about his father. And, and as you've described, I mean, they can't, you can't get everything in. So you have to try to choose, you know, the anecdotes, the things that you think really give people an insight into who this person's, who this person really was. And you, that responsibility fell to you. Yeah. I'm an only child. So, um, it, it was my, my job to do. And, and I knew that I couldn't do it by myself. So I asked my partner, Christine, to help. And then our friend, Renee, also uh, pitched in to, to help support that process. But, you know, there was no question in my mind that I wouldn't talk about the fact that he was a track star um, in high school. And um, that was something even when he was in the hospital, he talked about, he sent me a picture of himself from the field. Um, the track field from in high school, talking about how that was some of his proudest moments. And then um, the other thing I knew I would definitely highlight was that my dad didn't need to die and right. that his death was preventable had we just done what we needed to do to get on top of this virus. Did that give you pause in that moment? Because I think that's, of course, how the world has gotten to know you. And we know, <laughs> we know a lot of COVID obituaries. I mean, it's unfortunately, it's a it's its own genre of American literature now, in which mm -hmm. we know about these lives cut short. But there are very few of them that I've read that take the turn that yours does. And I applaud that turn. And I think it's an important turn. But I'd like to hear you talk a little bit about that decision. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, honestly, I, I didn't think about it as a radical act. Um, I was just sharing my truth. And that's the kind of person I am. It's also the kind of person my dad is, was. And, you know, when I was going through the decision-making process, that first and foremost was the thing that I knew I needed to say in the obituary. Um, 
but since, you know, my dad's passing and, you know, having sort of gained this strange celebrity around this obituary, I've learned so much more about obituaries and how they can be uh, tools of exclusion, how there have been other obituaries that have taken more of a political lean before during other times of crisis. And I feel really proud um, to, you know, be somebody who has experienced such a tragedy and has decided to try and make something good out of it. But you went much further than that. You, in pretty short order, and maybe you can tell us about the the process and how it played out, but you then uh, held a memorial service uh, at the Arizona State House and you invited the governor to attend. Can you tell us a little bit about your decision to do that and how that worked out? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is the the kind of area where, you know, I leaned into my own background, professional background. I'm um, an environmental advocate, as we said at the, the top of the hour, working on climate change issues. And it's quite often that, um, you know, climate change act activists will do these types of uh, tactics where you invite a CEO of a polluting company to something or call on an elected official to do X, Y, and Z. And so just sort of, sort of looking into those own tactics that got attention on important issues, I decided to apply those to my dad's, um, in my dad's honor. And the only thing that really made sense to me was um, I needed to talk to the governor. I needed him to acknowledge that his fail failed leadership resulted in a spike in Arizona and that he was following a president who was downplaying the virus and that that had something to do with all of this. And I also believed that if we as a society did a better job of humanizing or personifying the loss, the numbers, that we would take this a little bit more seriously. And that that really came from inspiration from the AIDS uh, Names Memorial mm. Quilt, um, which for folks who don't know, um, you know, AIDS activists in the late 80s, early 90s, um, really were experiencing kind of a similar situation that we're experiencing now where government wasn't responding to the crisis and people were dying and uh, Cleve Jones and others came together to start to build this quilt out, one panel for each person. Uh, they happen to be six feet by three feet, which is the same size as a coffin. And whenever they were laid out uh, across the mall, it gave this incredible visual of the lives that were lost due to our, our AIDS um our AIDS crisis uh, management practices. And so there was something about that that I wanted to do with um, having the vigil launching marked by COVID to really help personify the loss and, and call for accountability. So, and there's a couple of levels of, of blame that you sort of use to invoke failure in a couple of different ways that I find really important and interesting. One is the idea that your father really did take seriously the advice that was given, which was non-advice, um, basically saying, you know, don't take this. This is being overblown by the press and and that he was listening to the president or CDC. And then the other layer, which is a little bit more passive, what we expect of society in general, which is just for our elected officials to take care. So this is back to your point about access to tests and the overall infrastructure of public health which has been not as good as it should have been before COVID-19. And we're arguing right now about in America of how good it will be after COVID-19. <laughs> but yeah. to, the, to the first part of that, the, the sort of pinning things on Trump. Mm -hmm. um, can you, I, wanna, I wanna hear more about that from you. Yeah. Because I think for people who don't have family members who listen to the president, this might be hard to understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I, I get that. I mean, my dad, I loved him so much. And yet, like, we didn't agree on anything politically. <laughs> my dad was a Trump supporter. And he, um, you know, was one of those folks that was really kind of excited about having somebody 
um, with a different background entering into the office. So he was um, really enamored with his uh, supposed business background. And, you know, whenever you're, um, what do I want to say? My my dad and I kind of agreed to, to disagree on a lot of things. In the context of the pandemic, though, you know, my dad believed that it was real, which I'm grateful for that. Um, he did practice social distancing and mask wearing uh, whenever we were going through the shutdown. And sure, he like missed his friends and he missed, you know, things that we all have been missing for a long time, but he took it seriously. And what happened uh, that really just got us to where we're at today is that the president not only downplayed the virus, we now know that he lied to the American public, but people like my dad, they listen, my dad listened to Fox news. You know, my dad had conservative talk radio on, you know, 24 hours a day and his social media feeds were littered with fake news that really reinforced that we were on the other side of the pandemic, that it was safe. And so when the president and his mouthpieces like Governor Doug Ducey reiterated that time and time again, my dad listened and trusted that. And when I tried to, in May, say, dad, we're in the same spot, we need to be super vigilant still, my dad's retort was, well, Kristen, I hear what you're saying, but why would the governor say it's safe to be out there if it's not safe? Why would the president say we're on the other side of this if we're not? And I couldn't compete with that. And that's, you know, what got, got us into this situation. I take it that Governor Ducey did not appear at the vigil. He did not appear at the vigil. The only um, acknowledgement I've gotten from the governor of Arizona was a, a short statement to the press that he released saying that his heart goes out to the family of Mark Urquiza and others lost to COVID, which my response to that was, I do not need your heart. I need you to act and do your job. Did anyone from his administration appear or reach out or offer something more than the platitudes you just described? Nope. That's it. What about other elected officials in Arizona or, or people in the media who saw this and felt like they needed to reach out? Was that something that happened? Yeah. I mean, in the sort of days and weeks after um, my dad's burial, which is when I held the vigil and launched Marked by COVID, I had just a groundswell of folks at the local and state level reach out, encouraging me to continue doing what I was doing and um, offer you know, condolences, but then sort of an open door for if you want to do more here, let's continue to connect. And um, I was really overwhelmed with that, to be honest with you. Um, and it, I think that the thing that really struck me was just the incredible amount of compassion that so many people had whenever the governor and the president had so little compassion. That, to me, really, I'm glad you said that. I, I mean, that strikes me. I've been having these conversations with people where we find ourselves the contradictions are so strong right now. It's so easy to see so much callousness. And I worry about this particularly, and we'll talk about this a little bit later. As this disaster has gone on, there's a sort of callousness that builds up in society. Mm -hmm. And so there's the overt attempts to do harm, which I think we can lay at the feet of Trump. Mm -hmm. There's the sort of harm by inaction. But then there's this just like radical empathy on the other side. And you must have experienced all of that in this highly compressed period of time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I it makes me think about how, you know, one of the things that makes our species so unique is our adaptability, right? We have incredible resiliency. And I think that's working against us right now in which we are losing our empathetic, um, you know, spine because our society is changing so rapidly and we are struggling to keep up with that and we're losing humanity. And I think one of the things that I've really just been so grateful for in this tragedy is the personal connections I've had with people who have experienced the type of loss that I've experienced or are survivors of COVID who 
are anything but um, you know unempathetic. They're such compassionate people who are sharing their stories because they're driven by love, love for their lost ones, love for people who may not give them the time of day or or call them bad names because they're wearing a mask. And I just think that is is quite beautiful. Just want to remind people you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with Kristen Urquiza, who's the founder of Marked by COVID, and her father died, Mark Anthony Urquiza, died of COVID-19 in June. So I guess in many cases, we might expect that after the obituary individual, um, there would have been a sort of return to some kind of normal life. And from what I can tell, it's been anything but that for you since then. Over the summer, uh, major news outlets started to write about you, started to write about the vigil and marked by COVID. And I speak for myself, but first of all, I should say thank you because you gave a lot of people the ability to channel their rage and their confusion. I'm sure you've heard this, but you know, it takes a brave person to sort of stand up and say, channel it here. And I think giving that ability for people to see the humanity that was suffering was really crucial. And then all of a sudden, you're pulled into the whirlwind, which is American politics in the year 2020. I, I guess I'd like you just to talk a little bit about what that was like. Suddenly you became a political figure. You appeared at the Democratic National Convention. Your phone probably never stopped ringing. <laughs> yeah. E email boxes full every day. Um, yeah. What's it like to suddenly become the head of a movement? Well, my life has changed. Um, it looks nothing like it did, you know, six months ago. And, and all of our lives have changed. But, you know, in this particular scenario, yeah, I sort of carved out this path. And um, I don't know if I quite understand what it fully looks like. And I'll, I say that because for the most part, all of this is happening from the same exact chair that you and I are talking in right now, uh, these same four walls. And um, that both allows me to do a lot more, not needing to travel different places to do public appearances, but it also does kind of remove some of the context that um, one would expect to sort of reinforce what's happening. So on the night that I spoke at the DNC, um, I also spoke at the same time, you know, in the same night as o uh, Michelle Obama. And, you know, the commentators were saying that both Michelle Obama and I had the standout moments. So that was amazing to be kind of elevated to, to that level. I had never expected my name to be said in the same sentence as Michelle Obama's, but it wasn't like I got a fist bump from her afterwards. Um, so that's just surreal, I guess, is what I'm saying. It is a very surreal experience. And I have been in a marathon literally since the day my dad woke up ill. I mean, the description that you give of being in the same four walls to have these remarkable things happen is so apt for everyone mm -hmm. right now. I mean, yours is a relatively extreme version of that. Uh, you know, when I finish my lecture, I don't then get a the media say I sounded as good as Michelle Obama, but <laughs> we are conducting our lives in these yes. spaces and just the way you and I are, are interacting right now. Um, I, I think, I know people would like to hear a little bit more about what it, it's like to get an email from whoever is organizing the DNC. I mean, what did you have in mind when you were invited to give that, to give <laughs> that talk? I was actually just reminded the other day that it was a tweet versus an email. <laughs> oh, of course, because it's 2020 and that's, you know, an email takes too long. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, you know, as you had mentioned, um, you know, following the vigil and the launch of Mark by COVID, you know, we started working with others impacted and sponsoring their loved ones on us obituaries and um, had gotten, you know, national, international, local media coverage. And it just ha so happens to align perfectly with the, you know, election cycle. And so someone from the DNC reached out to me over Twitter 
um, on direct message, which I hadn't even known I had open <laughs> and said, hey, this is who I am. Um, and are you interested in connecting? And, you know, I was a little suspicious at first, but I Googled the guy's name and he turned out to be legit and, you know, in the vice president's like inner circle. And so I said, sure, I will chat with you to see what's up. Um, and we actually had a, I, I connected with him a couple days later, we had a few kind of conversations. Um, and, you know, after the second conversation, he came back saying that uh, the DNC would would really enjoy having me do, you know, a standalone speech. And in that moment, I knew that was a really big deal. Did, did you think it was going to be like one of these town hall things where people affected by COVID were going to be speaking with? They did that a lot at the DNC with Joe Biden in one room with the mask and then people mm -hmm. on screens quite different from the way the RNC attempted to do theirs, by the way. Right. We might talk about that later. But you had a single standalone speaking spot. I did, yeah. And one of the options was that I could have been in sort of one of this town hall type scenarios. Um, there was a couple of other sort of smaller things too. They asked me like what I would be comfortable doing. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, I said I'd, I, it would be a, a privilege and an honor to participate in whatever way the campaign thought would be best for me sharing my story. And I would be comfortable also doing a standalone speech. Um, and, you know, I, when I said that, I knew it was a big deal, but I also, um, to your point earlier, part of what has been driving me, my purpose, my oxygen is really helping other people and is helping other people channel this incredible amount of rage that they feel into something that's productive. And for me personally, that is something that I thought a lot about when my dad was sick, that if I don't do something, this is just going to all internalize and be not good for my own personal health. Uh, that's such an important point to make, although a lot of people might find support in a small group or just with family. I mean, you've had the courage to <laughs> take it public. And these days that doesn't come without risk. I mean, yeah. I think back to Sandy Hook, which was the first time I really realized we were not living in the country that I had grown up in. I actually, I say that with a, with a lot of privilege. I think a lot of people have lived in, in that world, but I had not lived in a world where I realized that people could die and other people with knowing nothing about it could say that didn't happen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 20 kindergartners could die and yeah. people say that didn't happen. And there's a lot of COVID denialism out there. It's remarkable. Um, it truly, truly is. And that is, I think that exists because of our leadership. It would always exist. There's always going to be some naysayers, some small right. percentage um, that, you know, I, I know that to be true, but the, to the extent is because of our response and our leaders, but also the, the impact of that on COVID survivors, the long haulers, people who've lost loved ones, like that's just cruelty on a whole new level that, you know, we're, we're going to, I mean, you know, this, we're, we're going to be dealing with the, the outcomes of this impact for, the rest of our lives. The rest of our lives, for sure. And our, our, you know, I think the rising generation is going to be coping with it too. Do you engage that kind of thing, the the denialism or the or the hate? I mean, you've just engaged it by making a strong statement about it, but well, you must I... have been tempted to engage it too. <laughs> I know I will. I'm thinking, putting myself in your seat. I'm thinking I would be really angry. Yeah. I am lucky in that right out of college, I took a job where I was knocking on doors, uh, raising money for environmental issues. And part of the strategy that was taught to me was that a majority of people agree with you, but only a few people will actually get involved. And your focus needs to be on finding the people who agree with you and are going to get involved. And so I kind of apply that to my work here, mm -hmm. where I know that the way I'm going to make impact is finding those who agree with me and helping to activate them. Um, but I won't you know, say that there hasn't been a troll here or there that's kind of gotten a little bit underneath my skin. Mm -hmm. Most of the time, though, they make me laugh. Cause it's just like, I, it's just so absurd. I have to laugh. 
but I think that's, I think that it is absurd. And I'm glad to hear that you can have that reaction. And I think that's great advice too, for people to then look for solidarity. I mean, yeah. That's what it sounds like. You've been trying to build bridges of solidarity with that energy that comes from reading yeah. those things or hearing those things. I appreciate that framing. I hadn't thought about it like that, but it is, it is what I am doing is building solidarity and, um, it's like, I don't know, in a way it's kind of like building that quilt, right? We can't actually come together to build a quilt, but we're figuring out how to do that. And it's such a virtuous cycle. Um, you know, one of the first people who reached out to me, it was only a few days after my dad died. Uh, her name's Fiona. Um, she, you know, explicitly said to me, what you're doing, it's showing me what to do in order to honor my mother. I couldn't have asked for a greater gift. And we have been in contact ever since. Um, and, you know, I think about her as like one of my closest friends, though I've never actually met her in person. Mm. That, that's, it's a good sort of segue into discussion about what we should be looking for next. And I mean, I wanna ask you about this in several different ways, but the first is really, we have an election coming up. I, yes. I think, I hope. Um, <laughs> yes, I hope. <laughs> um, what do you want to see from a Biden administration on COVID-19? I think you have, of anybody I've talked to on this program, earned the right to give advice to this next administration. I'm not, I'm not even go down the road of what advice you'd give to a Trump administration. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what what should Joe Biden hear from Kristen Arkiza? Um. First of all, thank you for that recognition. I feel like I've earned it too. Um, and one of the things that I, from the very beginning with Mark by COVID, uh, thought about was I want to make sure that whatever our COVID response is, is that it centers around the people who have been most impacted, the folks who have shouldered our response so well, uh, so far to ensure that their needs are met. And so you know, I've been thinking about this in a framework of uh, five R's. So there's response, there's recovery, there's resiliency, there's recognition, and then there's restitution. And I think for each of those five R's, it gets at not only the right now and the near term, but also how do we make communities whole again? And how do we prevent future pandemics from happening? Because Newsflash, <laughs> we are in danger of more pandemics happening. And, Absolutely. you know, we need to be taking this threat seriously. So we have a, a question in from someone who's listening, Amy Slayton, thanking you for your activism. And I'm curious also, as I am, tell us a little bit about your decision making right now, how to go forward. Um, marked by COVID, the project. Can you just take us into a little bit um, what the future looks like for that project? Yes. So we are um, actually embarking upon hosting the first week of mourning. Uh, one of the things underneath recognition um, is, you know, we need to ensure that this doesn't happen again. That's not only a resiliency piece, but that's also creating curriculum, which I'm, that's just one of the reasons why I'm so excited to talk to you <laughs> to make sure that, um, you know, this pandemic isn't a black hole, but also, you know, really acknowledging this incredible loss and allowing people to grieve and to collectively mourn and to bear witness to what the human cost of this has been. So from October 4th through October 11th, we'll be doing daily live streams. Uh, where we'll have a remembrance service every day at uh, noon Eastern. And then we'll end on the 11th with a vigil. And we're encouraging folks all across the country to hold, uh, you know, vigils that are socially distant, safe, or in somebody's home um, to help raise that awareness that, you know, this is over 200,000 people who have have been lost. And folks can find out more information about that at weekofmourning.com. Okay, I'll make sure that we um, get that information out to people too, October 4th through 11th. Um, and it's it raises this question also about the, the difficulties of holding a memorial in the middle of a disaster, which is ongoing. I think your example of the AIDS quilt is beautifully applied here because that's a disaster. Nobody waited for it to end before they really started a robust memorialization. And the memorialization there also had a political purpose, which was to 
force policymakers really to name and shame them to take a position mm -hmm. on this disaster. So with that in mind, I'm wondering, um, a vigil, a week-long vigil, that's certainly something everyone should participate in. What other kinds of memorial practices are you looking for so that COVID-19 doesn't just get lost in the midst of all of the disasters we're facing in America these days? Yeah, thanks for asking. Um, one thing that I'm really excited to advocate for is a national holiday, um, a COVID memorial holiday. We have, and it could also be, you know, for other sort of public health, um, uh, you know, uh, things as well, but it needs to be COVID first. And, um, you know, we have some uh, allies in Missouri who are also um, advocating for that as well. And, and their recommendation is that it's on February 28th, which would um, commemorate the first COVID death here in the United States, which I think is a really kind of important marker for us to be thinking about. Um, but I also think that there needs to be actual physical memorials. Uh, in the United States, there's only one AIDS memorial. It's here in San Francisco. Um, we need to be able to carve out space, like actual physical space for people to, to be at, to grieve, to ensure that this isn't forgotten. And then the other piece is curriculum. And I'm meaning curriculum all the way down to like young people. Mm -hmm. I don't want for future generations to be taught the Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492 version of COVID. Right. They need to be taught in a sensible way that this pandemic happened. It cost millions of people's lives globally, which it unfortunately will eventually probably get to. And that part of the reason why it was this bad is because our politicians failed us. So it's a a discussion about memorials, which offer people places to gather and grieve and also again to find solidarity and comfort. And that but then the teaching part um, goes well beyond one physical memorial structure. And I'm thinking as you're talking about the September 11 families, mm -hmm. you know, if you look in that first year, particularly after that, there were so many things going on in our country, but those families formed, I think more than 20 mutual aid groups formed. Yeah. And a, and a few of them have persisted and they didn't always all get along or see eye to eye <laughs> politically. I mean, our right. country went to war in the middle of that. Mm -hmm. But their role was absolutely crucial because of the moral authority that they had to not lose sight of memorial, not right. lose sight of curriculum, the two main things you're you're talking about here. But it was an awful lot of work for them. I mean, is this a future you envision? Um, you know, I, I hear what you're saying, and it wasn't originally the future I envisioned for myself, but it's also the future I see myself heading up now. Um, there needs to be um, restitution for folks impacted by COVID. And, you know, we're at this crossroads now where we have three major crises I see facing our country. We have this pandemic, we have the racial justice crisis, and we also have the climate crisis. And I do think that the three of them um, can exacerbate and perpetuate one another. But I also think in our response and recovery, there is an opportunity to raise all boats in addressing, you know, to Joe Biden's point, this build back better plan and there is nothing more honoring and patriotic that I feel like I can do than playing a role in really helping to organize us who have been marked by COVID to advance more equitable policy to ensure better outcomes for all people. That convergence of the three disasters has been really quite something for people. And there's a, a consciousness that has to be, I don't think that's necessarily like obvious to people to mm -hmm. people until they kind of get a bit of consciousness around this. But the fact that George Floyd had COVID. Right. And that he throughout his life had been the victim of structural racism without a doubt and health inequality mm -hmm. and had lived in Houston and grew up in Houston in communities that frequently flooded because of, I mean, it all converges yes. there, but you have yeah. to really talk with people about that. I mean, it's not something that's just so, obvious. I suppose that you're already having these conversations. <laughs> we're having yeah. it right now. Yeah, exactly. And it's why, you know, it's one of the reasons why I've been so vocal too is, is, you know, I knew COVID 
before my dad got sick, I knew COVID and I knew that pandemics disproportionately impacted, you know, folks who are living already on the margins. And here in the United States, I knew that if things went wrong, the childhood community that I grew up in, where my parents still lived, would see some of the worst of it. Um, but, you know, I have been very lucky to benefit from a robust public education system, which I know uh, was mentioned in my biography. I got a scholarship to go to a really good college, went to graduate school. I am one of the lucky ones where the way our public education system is set up really worked for me. But that doesn't mean that there aren't numerous bright people out there that need different types of investments. And our current investments aren't working to really tap into that opportunity and give people you know, what we promised in our founding documents. And so I welcome the opportunity to interrogate that further and help to connect the dots with folks in a, a way that starts to build the consciousness. And I feel like more people, and in particular, you know, younger generations are growing up in a time where this is in their face and, and they're demanding more from us. And I think that is really inspiring. It's the, again, the, the unique position that you have and the moral authority that you have to speak at this time also means that it's possible in the next Congress that politicians will be listening to you. It's not unheard of. Um, <laughs> and in some cases, I'm thinking again of September 11, it was victims' families who agitated for many different um, pieces of legislation, some of which actually shaped public safety in New York City. Um, I wonder if you've been thinking about that. That goes well beyond curriculum. I mean, lobbying yeah. is a whole nother matter. Um, I, you know, I have definitely been thinking about that and um, have actually been looking at the 9-11 families as sort of a model to uh, study as a blueprint for the type of advocacy and type of demands that we can uh, really put before Congress. And so I'm really anxious uh, for us to be on the other side of this election and hopeful that yeah, yeah. Uh, we have very favorable outcomes because I am uh, looking forward to leading the charge and holding politicians accountable, even if they're on the left or the right side. I mean, listen, I know at the end of the day, not one individual is a panacea to all of our problems. Like I genuinely believe that democracy is a participa participatory sport. And, um, sure. you know, it's, it's something that we need to continue to push and fight for. And um, yeah, so, you know, I'm looking forward to bringing it on. <laughs>
quote unquote adults who invested time in me really made a huge impact on how I thought about myself and my own opinion. And I can remember being in high school and a friend of my father's um, at a, a baseball match coming over and saying, you really do read a lot. Tell me about what you're reading. And I you know, told him you know, about the book I was reading and he was like, never stop reading. You are so smart, keep going. And I just share that story because I try my best to spend time with young people to hear what they're thinking and encourage them on some basic, basic things that really helped me um, when I was trying to figure out where I was going in life. First and foremost, exercising your right to vote is the most important thing that you can do right now to ensure that we have the type of uh, democracy, climate, uh, justice rights that um, we all deserve. And I can understand the, believe you me, I can understand some of the frustrations around there not being anybody who is quote unquote, like a pure candidate. But here's the thing. Like I said a moment ago, democracy is a participatory sport. That means that we have to continue to raise our voices and we can only participate in democracy with somebody who actually believes in democracy, which Donald Trump doesn't. So first and foremost, people need to vote. Um, but second of all, I am think that young people should continue to punch above their weight. And what I mean by that is I never, and maybe I was a little naive, but like I was never kind of afraid to just approach the professor and tell them something or ask a question or, sure. you know, was upset about something and kind of raised my voice about it. And, you know, I, I later learned that that's called tenacity. Um, but, you know, at the time it's like your voice does that, that was me kind of expressing that my voice mattered. And even if I didn't quite have like the experience, I had passion. And so following your passion and raising your voice is going to help you find your way. How can people support your work? A um, couple of ways. Uh, folks should go to markedbycovid.com backslash sign up. That'll get you on our email list, which is like, we're not, we're a nonprofit and we're volunteer run. So it's like me and my partner will be emailing you, not right. some <laughs> crazy yeah. corporation thing. Right. Um, and we'll keep people updated on different actions, things that are coming up. Um, and there's also, you know, for folks who have the ability to do so, uh, ways to donate on the website as well. Markedbycovid.com slash sign up. And we get a guaranteed email from, from you or your partner. That's, that's, that's great. And that'll keep people up to date on the actions that you're doing. And then eventually whatever kind of legislative priorities you have or whatever kind of pedagogical. So that was my second question. If teachers want to be connected um, and sort of get advice from you or yeah. ask you to share testimony or, or however, um, how should they be, how can they engage with you? That's a great question. Um, I, you know, totally appreciate um, the, the incredible job that teachers at all different levels do. And I am a fierce advocate for uh, workers' rights and safety, and 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 teachers fall in that as well. And so, for teachers who are interested in um, becoming, you know, brain uh, partners and kind of figuring out these curriculum place pieces, please feel free to email us at act a c t at markbycovid.com, and um, you know, we'll we'll follow up and kind of figure out where to go from there. Act at markedbycovid.com. Okay, great. Uh, just to remind everybody, you've been listening to COVID Calls, and we're on every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Tomorrow, we'll be talking with Drexel University Public Health Professor Cheryl Barber, and we'll be talking about COVID-19, race, and public health in Philadelphia. Kristen Urquiza, um, what a tremendous hour. Thank you so much for your generosity and time and everything you're doing, and again, allowing the country to use your story as a way to be angry and start to heal. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me on um, this call. And I look forward to keeping in touch. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you tomorrow, five o'clock.